0: Welcome back to the fourth episode of The Social Relapse, a podcast where we talk about how social media is changing how we think, act, and see ourselves. Joining me today is a good friend of mine who will be discussing his experiences of public health misinformation and how we should all be more wary of the ways in which social media has encroached on our lives and our ability to voice our opinion. But rather than me explaining for him, here he is introducing himself.
1: My name is Yui. I'm a recent grad from LSE and London School of Hydrogen and Tropical Medicine for taking the study in health policy planning and financing. And and I'm employed by the federal government, um, as in Health Canada. Um, and I'm a, currently working as a policy analyst in pharmaceutical financing and pharmaceutical finance policymaking.
0: Excellent. Sounds like you have a lot of responsibility in your role. So, how would you describe your relationship with social media? Like, are you someone who has maximum screen time usage or you hardly use it? What's, what's your description of that?
1: I'll let the viewer do the math, but I think when I was in high school, like in terms of um, the Facebook got popular. um, So, and yeah, growing up very closely with social media. And I remember first year university, that's when Instagram became a thing. And uh, yeah, I guess Grew up with, you know, from, you know, when the stocks of Facebook was just a couple bucks and now it's like, however much. Um, <laughs> in terms of being, uh, getting in touch with social media recently, no, I'm actually completely, um, uh, well, my Instagram is unplugged. And um, in terms of Facebook, I, I try not to look at the things because, you know, some of the informations sometimes uh, often, you know, gray area information or like, you know, uh, information that are completely contradicting of each other can actually pop up on Facebook. So, so just reading all of that, it's just kind of, um, it just more or less stresses me out. So I try, I try not to look at the news and then I just, you know, keep the messaging app and, you know, as well as texting and calling. So I have to say, I'm not a big social media person, at least for now, for the time being, especially actually for a time like this. <laughs> yeah. What about yeah. you?
0: I guess pretty much the same. I actually didn't create a Facebook account until I was maybe 17. Um, And thankfully I was very selective with what I posted on it. So I didn't have this kind of um, embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) posts and memes and and various other things (laughs) on my feed that I had to then like delete en masse when I was like 20. So I was pretty fortunate to have avoided that. Um, That's good. Yeah. But I, I want to touch back on you because you mentioned that obviously, you know, it's a big part of you growing up from high school and onwards, but you end by mentioning you realize that things within Facebook weren't always either true or accurate. When did that become a realization to you? Like, mm,
1: I feel like most things on there are, are I would say, half-truths. You cannot say, oh, like, you know, maybe social media is completely, you know, spitting junk or, or something like that. I I'm a firm believer where kind of like all information you know um that kind of passes through on, you know Facebook, obviously there's the aspect of cookies where where perhaps your um uh, you know like your search history or your preference would be you know pop up but I feel like in terms of political things and then you know you look at uh posts from you know like pages you know like bloomberg like b b c like you know these kind of platforms. Um, you see conflicting information, but at the same time, you know, when they're from a fairly reputable source, you can you can only believe that they're half truths, right? Um and you need to come up with your own kind of thinking. I'm not sure. I I, I may have completely missed the question. So <laughs> if I just did not straight up answer a question, I'm sorry.
0: No, I think that's definitely something that will come to throughout the podcast and, and throughout other episodes is kind of doing your own thinking that you can't really just take everything on social media at face value. Um and you do have to kind of evaluate what you see um and analyze information from a lot of sources i think one of the dangers on social media obviously is that it becomes an echo chamber right like you end up following people you agree with or Mm. views that you think are right and Mm. you kind of block or censor anyone that you disagree with so there is that danger with um social media so Our very first topic today is the violence in Myanmar at the moment. So you mentioned earlier how, you know, social media isn't a place that you'd go to for news. But we know that there are a huge number of the population within Myanmar actually rely on Facebook for not just their news, but their livelihoods um, and a way to kind of get public health advice as well, which is really important at the moment. But since February 1st, the military have cut access to Facebook and have justified this by saying that it's been, you know, allowing civil disobedience and by cutting Facebook, they can ensure stability in the region. My question to you is a bit of a heavy one, but...
1: (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Given the, the size of the population of Myanmar that rely on Facebook for their news, can digital blockades like this against a population be justified in the 21st century?
1: I mean, this is my own opinion. For me, I, I feel like, you know, if Facebook already has a presence, you know, like social media freedom as their form of, uh, you know, news outlet, you know, if that kind of, uh, perception is in place, you know, that system is in place and, you know, um, people that live in that region, trust the source. Um I feel like you know uh whatever the government is doing is unjustifiable
0: okay, so yeah, I guess the important thing though is that it's not actually the government that's taking this right it's it's the the military but let's let 's go back to Facebook. you said something about Facebook, you said. If they rely on Facebook that much, they shouldn't have their access limited, right? Yeah.
1: So let's just say, you know, we're gonna be talking about it later, like about China. And for example, if China starts to, you know, let Facebook in and Twitter and YouTube, um, what would what would that be like, right? You know, people will obviously see a whole lot of like, you know, Western kind of perspectives and news and so on. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to make that much of a difference because, you know, China now more than ever probably has the best like human rights in its history, you know, relatively speaking, like the people there have kind of own perspective, you know, it doesn't mean social media is completely banned in China, like China has its own platform, Um, maybe because China doesn't want like, you know, like kind of like a Western company to gain like perhaps like the biggest market share in the world, you know, in in terms of, you know, there's deep politics there that, you know, we're going to try to avoid.
0: So we know that this is a military coup in Myanmar, and this isn't the first time that they've used social media to kind of further their agenda. And we know that in 2018, the military officials were propagating fake news um, and particular posts against the Rohingya minority which led to a lot of violence against them and with some definitions of this violence even counting it as a genocide against these um, against this minority population. Mm -hmm. um, What kind of slippery slope does it present to us as not just a society but as a group of individuals when social media can be weaponized in this form so not just that it can be censored but also that it can be used to kind of spew hate um which has very real and human consequences
1: yeah no uh, absolutely i i feel like in terms of social media wise like you know like i mean the country i was born in pretty much had, had had the most kind of like stage uh time you know in terms of like social media you know like in terms of china like you get all different kinds of hate you know like the cpp all different kinds of hate my kind of social media is comprised of people from different ethnic groups, but at the same time, you know, people are brought up Canadian and obviously Canada is very different from all the other parts of the world. And, you know, we, when we have this um, system in place, this kind of like macro political regime, you know, we're very lucky to have these kind of stuff, but, but all the others uh, they don't have like our, like the luxury of having that. And could you just repeat your question real quick?
0: That's okay. So I guess that the wider mm-hmm. thing I'm trying to get to is when you have individuals who weaponize social media mm. in a way that has human consequences, my follow-up question is like, who's accountable for this? Is it the social media giants that we have in Silicon Valley? Or, you know, is it the users themselves? Who, where does the, the accountability, the responsibility lie when it's weaponized in this way?
1: it's it's not a matter of accountability anymore it's the matter of who has control like um you know there's unfortunately you know there's very few kind of you know uh social media or perhaps news outlet that have integrity and a lot of you know the stuff that's happening these days are are people have become more partisan so that means that you know people uh perhaps you know you know, it's not just like the role of social media has became more, but, you know, the partisan thinking via social media channels and social media channels has fully, you know, radicalized people even. Um, so I don't think it's an account. Of, it's an issue of accountability. It's an issue of who has control, but who at the end of the day has accountability. I don't know, God, and maybe like people, <laughs> um, you know, proper governments, maybe like, you know, governments who, who uh, like who actually think for the people and then and then have journalists that are not afraid to die perhaps I...
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's something that's hard to pinpoint right on a specific entity that is accountable. But we often hear in debates as well that politics and government can't take on social media like it's just it's just too big a problem right like the weight that social media giants have, um, and even when governments do try to pull them in line with regulation or specific policies, we often see, especially from an economics standpoint, we see arguments about you know, not paying taxes or moving across to a different place so that you're no longer under that remit. So it does seem like people are throwing their weight around and not really wanting to claim responsibility for it. And, and this is really important in the context of Myanmar because Facebook... Did admit later on that mm-hmm. you know the fact that military officials were able to weaponize this fake news against the um, Rohingya population led to led to lots of you know violence and and hurt against this group of individuals. So surely they have a, a bigger responsibility to counter this fake news before it can get across to the masses. Isn't this what they have the report button for? Um, and just the idea of fact checking information before it's put out.
1: Hmm. Well, that's just a clear indication, you know, uh, like, like how the events actually played out was, you know, indeed, there's some sort of like manipulation, right. With the, with the social media and social media is actually the easiest to manipulate. I feel like, you know, because a lot of it, um, you know, where like specifically Facebook is a place where users get a lot of like, you know, like the majority of data input in terms of, um, it resides on the user it doesn't you know like in terms of i feel like in terms of monitoring um where as a platform um you know there's not a not not a lot of admin action you know like it's more kind of like your it's more kind of like your own input and you know Mm. like the company whatever it's using it they're using this input to you know this raw data for their own gains for example they're feeding you ads or or like whatever stuff that you will like but then in other things you know uh it's easier to have like it like it's also easier to be controlled um so i don't know they're kind of making like a double dipping i guess i <laughs> i'm not sure if i'm making sense yeah. or even if, if i'm talking about the right thing but
0: I mean, I totally get it. It seems to be that they get all the reward without any penalty. Um, it's definitely a profitable model for them, um but one that doesn't seem to have very real ramifications um and I think also maybe we just haven't seen the political will either within governments either nationally or internationally, to really tackle um, the the you know the propagation on social media and we saw it recently, didn't we, in the election in America when Twitter finally decided to block the account or suspend the account of yeah, Donald Trump. Yeah, it took me a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and even that, I mean, I guess you could say, you know, one of the justifications of it at the time was that he was spreading fake news about the election. And seeing as elections are seen as like the cornerstone of democracy, that's got quite a harmful impact. But... From a public health perspective as well there's been a a big propagation of fake public health information Mm, um, you know and we would also hold social media accountable for its spread as well should we or is that also something that is not within their remit
1: absolutely i i Um, I'll give you one of the examples. So, so my dissertation was actually regarding about essentially the marketing on, on social media platforms, uh, like regarding breastfeeding, feeding during COVID-19. And a lot of the companies like, you know, like bottle companies and, you know, uh, um, baby formula companies, they like to put out a lot of false information regarding about, you know, um, breastfeeding, breastfeeding. to the masses right uh, you know like they have an amazing platform for example you know like if you look at the nestle uh facebook page in in like southeast asia you know there's like literally tens of millions you know followers or like likes that you know that are kind of uh, in touch with with their social programs and they're giving off false information like you know things can be passed on you know in like breast milk and then Uh, So please, um, please stop breastfeeding and then, you know, use this infant formula, you know, and, you know, like babies like that are one year old or or like that are younger, like six months, like they cannot, you know, like it's not a good idea for them to have baby formulas because, Mm -hmm. you know, third world countries, they're more likely to have like pneumonia, diarrhea, and when, you know, there's no sanitation. And what these companies yeah. are trying to do is they're exploiting, right? Like if a there country, you know, like in a household that might not even have access to like clean water, but like imagining, you know, me donating like, like a bucket of baby formula, like what that means, you can give it to your child or you can go on and sell it. Right. So people take these kind of things, but yeah. they're forgetting, you know, in terms of like infant, like they need breast milk because that will build their like immunity and antibodies and so on. Um, So that's a perfect example of, you know, what you're kind of saying where, where the companies are not checked at all by any sort of international monitoring body. And they're kind of just after, you know, the interest of the poorest and perhaps the most uneducated populations.
0: I mean, I remember during one of our public health lectures when they were kind of briefly covering the Nestle scandal from either the 70s or the 80s. Um, and it's so shocking to think that after all of that, backlash, they're still doing it. They're
1: still um, doing it this year. It's they're COVID. It. It's happening. Yeah. They're still doing it.
0: Yeah. That's, that's terrible. There's something really horrific as well about exploiting the fear that a pregnant mother or a mother has about her young child, because you Know your maternal instinct and the idea of looking after your child would obviously trump everything else. So, if you're being fed that information, you know, you, you yeah. would follow it, you wouldn't know. Yeah, no,
1: to. that's actually one of the reasons I wrote about in my, in my dissertation. That, yeah. You know, like it's very kind of like a sufferable situation, not a good situation for the mother. Like, the second in terms of the largest child mortality, right? Pre five year old in the world, you mm. know, number one, Africa, like number two, Southeast Asia. Why? Because. Because actually, like, you know, um, like, WHO and, you know, like, UNICEF actually cracked, you know, like, you probably brought it up, you know, because of like the 80s and 90s scandal, and then now, you know, they've, they've cracked it, but, you know, they're nowhere big enough to go against like the giants, there's still like tons of work to be done. Um, Actually, just because of COVID, I've I've been kind of hearing things, you know, from um, different uh, nonprofits, as well as like, um, WHO that they're kind of, coming up with, like, a social media algorithm to to kind of monitor um, all these kind of ads um, that are going against, you know, some of the WHO, like, infant feeding guidelines um, and, you know, like, the infant kind of uh, feeding network. So all, all these, like, um, nonprofits are coming together to form this kind of monitoring mechanism kind of like algorithm to monitor like ads like this on facebook instagram and things like that it's coming together and hopefully you know maybe in 10 years we'll have that
0: (laughs) i mean to be honest though it sounds really good i guess if it can come together hopefully sooner But it does make me wonder, why do we have an initiative to counter fake public health news, but not fake political news? Obviously, within the pandemic, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we should counter fake public health news. But given this new radicalization of people Mm -hmm. on the political spectrum that, you know, we don't really listen to each other or listen to people with opposing views. So why is there not a stronger commitment by governments to counter fake political news or news that purposefully weaponizes individuals against another. I mean, why why do we draw the line at health?
1: I'm going to probably get very philosophical on you. Okay. Like, (laughs) Um, Personally, I think things like, I think health policy stands for it's, it's more of a principle issue, right? You know, it's life and death, right? People cannot be impartial about life and death. You know, if, a government, you know, it's going to be in charge and it's going to kill everyone. Okay, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa there. Like something is wrong with this, right? You know, it's right or wrong. But but do people really care about at the end of the day, especially in the West, like what kind of government is in its governing them? Like at the end of the day, and then, you know, every four years, every eight years, things might be different. So it's easy to be impartial about politics. And that's where you have this kind of watery, murky area where where, you know, you can get a hand in or two in terms of controlling and and I feel like when it comes to politics social media is more impartial regard you know as opposed to you know health policy reporting or or like some of the health policy news on social media it's
0: I mean yeah this is pretty much kind of the first topic in a a nutshell is is the role of social media within politics I guess and also the role that politics has in social media I think within the UK we had a coalition government leader who now works Mm -hmm. for Facebook and I think often we discuss within like the public sector sphere, this like revolving door of policymakers into these private institutions, whether it's social media or finance or health consulting, which is my personal bugbear. But thinking thinking more widely, I guess the idea of of monitoring the Internet brings us nicely onto our second topic, which is a discussion of how safe digital political activism can be. And this is obviously a really fine line, right? Like you have to be able to monitor the internet for fake news, but also not monitor it too much in that it kind of curtails an individual's right to freedom of expression or kind of right to protest. So the question we're going to be discussing is how safe is political activism online? Sadly, that's all we have time for on today's episode of The Social Relapse you will be able to hear more on digital media activism and Asian representation on social media in our upcoming episodes. So till then, sit back, spread the word, and we'll see you next time on The Social Relapse.